Another thing I noticed there in person was the caravan members in that march, vast majority, I would say at least 70%, should have been in either high school or middle school. So when the Border Patrol launched over tear gas and said they weren't targeting children or kids, that's all they could have targeted. There was not another possibility. That whole thing was being led by kids. Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Prisoner-on-prisoner violence broke out at the Holman facility in Alabama on December 2nd, causing one death and multiple injuries. Holman is an important reference point for the national prisoners movement due to its high level of prisoner organization and collective unity. Leading organizers inside contend that this outbreak of violence was provoked by staff and intentional neglect, similar to the notorious stabbings that occurred in South Carolina earlier this year. In that case, South Carolina prison guards provoked the violence by moving hostile prisoners together into the same cells and then locking them in for hours without medical attention once the violence began. In both cases, prisoner-on-prisoner violence risks undermining the solidarity that tends to direct collective anger against the administration and thus reduce overall levels of violence inside the facilities. It also can be used as an argument for prison expansion. As Kinetic Justice, an organizer with the Free Alabama Movement said about this incident, their agenda and plan has not changed. Sacrificing lives to present a picture that is intended to scare the public into allocating almost a billion dollars to build some more prisons. Profit over people's humanity. Free Alabama Movement and other prisoners are calling for an investigation into prison conditions and the violence. Alex Friedman, Associate Director of the Human Rights Defense Center, owns a small amount of stock as an activist shareholder in CoreCivic, the nation's largest for-profit prison company. Friedman has filed a shareholder resolution that would prohibit the firm from housing immigrant detainee children who've been separated from their parents and of parents separated from their children. CoreCivic operates numerous immigration centers. Though the company has denied that it holds children separated from their parents, the shareholder resolution notes that it, quote, may change that policy in the future or may enter into future contracts to house separated immigrant children and or their parents." Core Civic, according to the resolution's supporting statement, has a questionable history with respect to housing immigrant detainees. A Core Civic employee was convicted of sexually abusing multiple female detainees at one of the company's detention facilities. Immigrant detainees have staged protests and hunger strikes at Core Civic detention centers. Currently, the company is being sued for using immigrant detainees to work for wages as low as $1 a day. The Minnesota Department of Corrections has entered into negotiations with over 100 prisoners at Rush City Prison, who went on a work strike this week over abuse and poor conditions. This is already a landmark concession 
since DOCs across the country tend to refuse to acknowledge, let alone negotiate, with striking prisoners. A new movement of refugees fleeing violence and starvation in Central America began to reach Tijuana last month in hopes of applying for asylum in the U.S. Comprised of multiple self-organized caravans, the refugees passed through incredible hardship and risk before thousands were temporarily settled in the Benito Juarez shelter, a sports complex on the southern side of the border wall, where many were left to sleep outside with minimal provisions. In addition to the wall, the refugees have faced a whole series of surveillance and control mechanisms that tend to turn the shelters into open-air prisons. Restrictions on movement, attacks by U.S. border guards with tear gas and Mexican nationalists with rocks and baseball bats, control over food, and the constant risk of arrest and deportation by Mexican police. Despite this repression, autonomous groups on both sides of the border have organized with refugees to address material needs, offer legal support, and to politically organize to allow them into the U.S. This week, we speak with Stephen, a solidarity organizer from San Diego, who describes the recent movement based on firsthand experience, as well as putting it into a broader context of U.S. militarization, border violence, and incarceration. He works with Otay Mesa Detention Resistance, who simultaneously support the refugees in Tijuana while struggling alongside detainees in the U.S. to shut down the Otay Mesa Detention Center. Here he is. My name is Steven Nieder. I'm with Otay Mesa Detention Resistance. I got involved in immigration work um, a while back, originally with a group called Border Angels, where we did the water drops out in the desert. And then I one day helped with a caravan with Pueblo San Fronteras. And after that day, I got more and more involved with the uh, caravan aspect of the people fleeing Central America, um, the Northern Triangle. Um, that one registered with me very hard because of all the destabilization that the U.S. has caused down there and how we, our only answer ever seems to be through military force as seen still to this day at our own border. I believe that we should take responsibility for our actions and if we're willing to spend the money destroying and destabilizing nations, we should very well be willing to spend just a fraction of it to help the people who are fleeing the U.S.-created violence. There is a large xenophobic stance right now in Tijuana, and it caught us completely off guard because with the last caravan in, in the spring, Tijuana was actually very supportive. And with past large refugee movements, such as the Haitians, Tijuana has been very receptive, and they've helped. And this also goes with a lot of the people that we are personally friends with down there who live there, that we have relationships with, who we know have supported in the past, for some reason they've been able to pick up on a anti-Central American movement and they've made the population down there at large very against the caravan. The news reports all the time about robberies that didn't happen, one of the our members was getting a, their hair cut down there, and the barber started talking to them about how the caravan members are going around and robbing stores, which is just simply false. But they keep and keep pushing false narrative stories like that to make the caravan members look like they're violent. All at the same time, while the right-wing movement down there, the, the xenophobic movement, have been attacking and constantly, constantly threatening violence against the caravan members. 
one of the first nights they were there, a group of uh, residents from Tijuana that live in uh, Playas, um, a wealthier group of people, came out and actually threw rocks at them. They chased them all the way to Las Playas, the, uh, where the border wall hits the ocean. They forced them into the corner and threw rocks at them. This is women, kids, and men hitting a lot of um, our volunteers. And the media and TJ painted the caravan members as the violent ones as they were hiding behind a wall of volunteers being pegged with rocks, getting death threats at them. The people from Tijuana were literally screaming at them that they should be exterminated. And yet the caravan members are the violent ones in this situation. When they were at Benito Arroyo's, there was also another protest. And if you can watch a video of the right-wing protesters coming up and attacking the police, trying to get through the line to attack the caravan members, and still again in the media in Tijuana, the caravan members are the violent ones, as they were literally over a block away in Benito Arroyo's behind a fence. Benito Arrez was ran by the federal government, specifically DIF. When it was moved to Bartel, the local municipality ran it for a second. They, immigration just took it over again. We're hoping to see a different structure at Bartel because the municipality was actually very lenient. When I went over to Bartel last Saturday, it actually amazed me that I was able to walk inside. I never successfully was allowed inside Benito Arroyo's. Only two, three of our organizing volunteers were allowed to, with a handful more of our lawyers allowed to. So that let us get in there. They also gave the caravan members a lot more freedom in organizing. And so now with immigration taking back over, we have established a structure inside. The caravan members have elected a leadership. They've elected people to distribute donations given. And so we're trying to keep up that structure. And so donations can go directly to the caravan members and they can properly distribute the goods amongst themselves as seems fit instead of the government holding on to them and not having the personnel to distribute them. And never getting our goods, and never getting the goods donated to the caravan members. Veritol is about 45 minutes from Benito Rales. It's a much larger structure. It actually is an indoor concert venue. It also has a large outside courtyard. It's a lot more better set up to host the caravan members, but in turn, when Bernardo Arez was within walking distance of Ted West, one of the ports of entry in San Ysidro, Baratel is 11 miles away. So this brings up a lot of fears of separating them from the border, not being able to hear their numbers when, when it's their turn to cross. And so a lot of the caravan members are now worried about getting to the border. Because now they have to either rely on the government, which they do not yet trust and don't have much reason for thus far, or they need to 
take public transportation. Public transportation, besides being, one, confusing, two, costing money, also puts them with the general public, who has thus far been at odds with them and has threatened them. There have been reports of numerous attacks, not just in Tijuana, but Tijuana is one of the more hostile areas right now. When they leave, one of the groups who's actually been targeting them is the local police. And the local police have been arresting them, handing them over to immigration, and they have been getting deported, which makes them scared to go out by themselves as they know that the government will take them and deport them. When they were still at Benito Juarez and they were being moved to Barrafeld, I believe 15 members of the caravan started a hunger strike. Their demands were for the U.S. to start facilitating the asylum process at a rate that it knows it can do. It's demanding that it does at least 300 people a day, which it should easily be able to. Right now, it's doing between 30 and the high numbers, usually 50, which at this rate will take at least a month before the first person from the caravan is seen through a port of entry. During the last caravan in spring, people were turned away from the port of entry, always under like a false context, because by U.S. law or the laws we signed on to, international laws, we must accept asylum seekers. The whole idea of seeking asylum is they are running away from an imminent threat. And so the idea of turning them away goes against the whole idea of asylum. How you enter shouldn't be judged against you because you need to enter your fastest way possible since you are fleeing an imminent threat. During the caravan last spring, people would go up and the border patrol would try their best not to say explicitly that they're denying you. They would try to come up with excuses of overcrowding. They also, if there wasn't a legal observer around, they'd tell the person seeking asylum that they need to go get on a list. At this time, there was no list. And so they would come outside of the port of entry and they'd ask us to get on the list. But we weren't making a list. We're not in charge of a list. They were just doing that to lie and get the asylum seeker away from the port of entry. After the caravan, they actually did create a list, which is completely illegal, going to lose in court. So now that they've made the list and they have to deal with the list, since the last caravan and between this caravan, there's been a large amount of people seeking asylum that have been added to the list. Because of this, the first member of the caravan will not be accepted for at least another month. One of the demands of the hunger strike is that they up the number to 300 people per day so that in the much nearer future, they can be taken in and they aren't left on the streets of Tijuana for the next two, three, four, five months with some legal experts claiming that caravan members will still be down there for the next year in a hostile environment. They're also asking that the government of Mexico streamlines their humanitarian visa applications, which will let them stay in Mexico for a year and also be able to work. And at the end of that year, they can either decide to apply again for a visa or they can seek asylum inside of Mexico. They can also still seek asylum inside the U.S. They're also demanding that a commission be formed 
from the new government of Mexico and meet and negotiate a solution to the problems in Tijuana. They're also demanding that the municipal police stop collaborating with immigration and deporting migrants, migrants detained for arbitrary reasons in Tijuana. They also want the local police and federal government to stop people from going to the port of entry and denying asylum. The other week when there was the tear gas being launched across the border, I saw in the local newspaper here in San Diego, one of the heads of border patrol saying they need to just go to the port of entry and ask for asylum legally. That's what they were trying to do. The police down in Tijuana blocked the bridge, blocked the river, completely blocked them from even getting near the port of entry. They physically were not able to do what the Border Patrol is trying to make it sound like, oh, they just need to do this. They are physically being withheld from doing that. The police down there also, I believe, just due to incompetence, funneled them on to an area of the fence that is about four stacks of barbed wire. It's the only area of the fence where you can stand and just directly see the person across in that area in a walkable distance which created a very, very high intention since now the caravan members in the Border Patrol were just staring directly at each other. Another thing I noticed there in person was the caravan members in that march, vast majority, I would say at least 70%, should have been in either high school or middle school. So when the Border Patrol launched over tear gas and said they weren't targeting children or kids, that's all they could have targeted. There was not another possibility. That whole thing was being led by kids. It actually amazed me the amount they held back because I know over here, if that was my high school, we would have been going much, much crazier than they were because they were actually very reserved, very held back. To my knowledge, there was about five tear gassing barrages. After the fourth one, I was standing right there near the fence. I'm not a glutton for punishment, so I was trying to stay a good distance back and trying to help those after they got tear gassed and were running away. But at this point, I thought the events were over because the police from Tijuana had put themselves between the border wall and the members of the caravan. And the members of the caravan were tar starting to splinter off and go back into TJ and leave. I, at this time, had walked up to see what was going on since uh, this whole time I stayed away from the wall since I didn't want to get injured, or just get tear gassed. So I actually joined a line behind the police, which was made up of media. As I was looking with all the media south into TJ, I heard about 15 pops, and next thing I know, tear gas canisters landed all around me. The Border Patrol had effectively just tear gassed media and police and a group of caravan members that were slowly leaving for the most part, staying there, most of them looking into TJ as their friends were heading back to the camp. It definitely showed that the Border Patrol were just there, flex their muscles, and do what this whole militarization of the border is to do, which is to intimidate. It's to dehumanize, make a us versus them, to paint them as invaders, when really it's families looking to escape the violence we have brought upon them. But yet, all we do instead of taking them in arms and making things right, is meet the violence we've created with more violence we're creating. Once someone seeking asylum is finally processed at the border, 
they're given a immediately or pretty immediately a credible fear interview to see if they do have a legitimate case in the eyes of U.S. law. If they don't, they're deported back to their home countries. If not, they're put into the process. In the best case scenario, they can be released to a sponsor's family. That happens in more rare instances since it costs a lot. A sponsor family has to pick up the entire bill. They have to provide them housing. They have to feed them. The U.S. keeps them from working. After about six months, sometimes they're allowed to apply to be allowed to work. But before that's allowed to happen, the sponsorship family puts the entire bill. If they don't get that, they're usually sent to detention. Once they're in detention, sometimes they're allowed to post bond. Bond is pretty expensive for people who are fleeing, since in most cases, they're either very poor or just don't have any money at all. Bonds usually set up between about 1500 and 3000 in my experience. Once they're released on bond, sometimes they have sponsor families. Nowadays, sometimes they don't. And they put them on the streets in the nighttime, usually around 8 p.m. to about 11 p.m. They have no idea where they are. We, as Otay Mesa Detention Resistance, one of the things we try to do is we try to go down and find them. This often means we have to go down, walk around, and just yell the person's name because there's no way else for us to communicate with them. They don't have phones. Sometimes the Border Patrol or ICE hold onto their documents. They don't have a single document with them. Once we find them, we have to figure out how to get them, where they need to go. The worst option that they can face is not getting bond and spending their entire process in detention. Besides the fact that detention just puts them against horrible conditions, the chance of their case actually plummets massively. When you're in detention, the process is much more streamlined. They essentially get you in and get you out of the country at a very fast rate. Your resources to fight your case are greatly diminished. You don't get to see as many judges. You don't get to talk to your lawyers as much. You just can't build your case and you don't have time to build your case. The oppression faced inside of detention centers is absolutely horrendous. There was one report that found that between about 2015 and 2017, I believe there was 15 people that died in ICE custody. It found that eight of those deaths probably could have been prevented due if they got proper medical care. There's that recent death of Roxana, a trans caravan member, who I said died due to HIV complications. Just recently, an independent autopsy report found that they had also been beaten in custody. Another thing they face is sexual abuse. Between 2010 and 2017, there was over a thousand complaints of sexual abuse. Of those complaints, less than 50, I believe it was around 42, 43, were actually investigated. ICE didn't investigate them. The Otay Mesa Detention Center is ran by Core Civic. Right now, Core Civic is trying to argue that investigating and essentially cracking down on sexual abuse is not their job. They are the ones that handle, that take care of the detainees. And they are also the ones fighting that it is not their job to enforce, to investigate, to essentially stop sexual abuse. They're also trying to silence people who are let in. With Otay Mesa Detention Center, it's actually very rare to hear about people going inside. I know a good number of people who have come and visited trying to get in. There's been a lot of locals trying to get in. 
The only group I know that regularly gets inside the Ochai Mesa Detention Center is Solace, which is a religious group. But currently, their access is being greatly restricted by the detention center because it's trying to claim that they need to sign a non-disclosure agreement that they can't come out and publicly say what they see inside. They're trying to hide what happens behind the doors even more than they already do, which is a lot. In order for somebody to visit one of the people detained, they need to be on the visitation list that the detainee makes. The detainee is allowed to update this list once every six months. So unless they know everybody that's going to try to come visit them, which essentially limits all of the local population who would try to help them after they come in, they can't get visited by them for at least six months. They also make them pay exorbitant amount of fees for phone calls. The detention centers actually make a lot of money off of this. As with most prisons, once you go in, they've also set up deals so where everybody has to buy the same garments, the same shoes. They have to go through the same telephone deals. The detention center is making money off every single thing. This is another holdback for the detainees because they are fleeing violence, usually caused by them not having enough money. Usually a lot of the violence they are facing is because they weren't able to pay the police or to pay the gangs in their country a weekly or monthly fee, essentially not to have their child beaten or murdered. And so they're fleeing here with little to nothing. And now to talk to a lawyer, to see legal options, to try to get any type of help, we put up like a $7 a minute fee, money they simply, simply do not have. And there's a reason for this. They are trying and they are doing a great job to silence the voices inside. With Otay Mesa Detention Center, we fund the phones so that they can call and they can talk to us and we help them organize inside so that they're able to talk through a collective voice. Because if 50 of them talk and sign on to a voice, it's harder for ICE to go and reprimand all 50. When if it's one or two people, they can give them hot showers, they can take the food away from them, and in many cases, they can just physically assault them. So we try to collectivize them so they can speak out against the abuses they see inside and face as little retaliation as they can. Usually they still have to face retaliation. The Otay Mesa Detention Resistance ultimate goal is to shut down the Otay Mesa Detention Center. They've made a mistake in targeting families because Trump didn't start that. He didn't end it. It's been going on. It's still going on. Working alongside them, one thing that always astonished me is the terrors that they go through, the terror that they face at home, how they've watched their sons be murdered, their daughters face sexual violence, and yet they come here and they still have so much hope. It makes no sense to me, and it is something that I cannot understand but it is something that they build through each other. They do it through the love of their wives. They do it through the love of their kids. They do it through the love of their community. That's one reason why right now in PJ, the caravan's in one large mass, because they don't want to split up. They don't want to be away from their neighbors. They don't want to be away from their friends. They power in community. They give hope to each other. They give support to each other. And that's one of the, the things I've actually noticed in this work is it's actually extremely easy to organize them because they have a sense of community 
and that they are willing to take the shirts off their backs to help their fellow person. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. We also encourage your feedback. You can email us at KiteLine at WFHB.org. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to tell your story or to record a message to a loved one behind bars at 812-269-2512. You can support our efforts and the prisoners we connect with through our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. You can follow us on all social media platforms by searching for KiteLine Radio or find us on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions shared on the show. Please join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.